Father, we first give you thanks again for Christmas, the birth of our Savior Jesus, God in human form, the one who was crucified for us, was buried and rose from the dead and ascended back into heaven, and we anticipate his next coming. Father, as we do this, help us to just maintain what you have given to us. Be responsible for the things that you have placed in our lives to maintain. We ask, Lord, that you would also help us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, to know nothing but him crucified. And as we do this, Lord, we ask that you would fill us with your Spirit, open us up to your moving, to your wisdom, and to your understanding. And please do this as we go through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, we read that Paul began to give his testimony before Governor Felix, Festus, King Agrippa, and Bernice. We witnessed the stubbornness of Paul and also the Jews and their recalcitrance or their obstinance or their rebelliousness of those who refused to come into the light. They didn't want to hear anything about the light or truth. Jesus told Paul that it must be hard to kick against the goats. Now, remember, I showed you a picture of the goats on my tablet since Daryl was out. Uh, Well, he still has that picture. Go ahead and show it to him, Daryl, if you would. Now, you can see a little closer. This is a cattle goad and how sharp the end of that is. And that's what Paul was experiencing. Remember, it would break the skin and cause you to bleed, whether it was a cattle or a person, whoever. And Jesus said, it must be hard to kick against the goads. So he knew what he was supposed to be doing, and he chose to do the opposite. He chose to do the wrong, but his conscience was working against him, but he suppressed his conscience. That's kicking against the goads. This is also known as, what I discussed last week, cognitive dissonance and we have ways of coping with this because when you do that which is wrong and you know it's wrong and you try to justify it or you just do not pay attention to your conscience that's cognitive dissonance and what takes place is anxiety fear loathsomeness sadness shame and stress and a few other things it causes people problems when they do this and that's what paul was doing and jesus called him out on it Like, why are you doing this? Why are you doing what is wrong when you should be doing what is right? We have all been guilty of committing this error, doing what we know to be wrong, and it's called sin. There's sins of commission, and there's sins of omission. Things that you know you ought to do, but you choose not to do them. That's sins of omission. Sins of commission, you know it's wrong to do it, and you do it anyhow. So all sins that we commit are in one of those two categories. So what do we as disciples of Jesus need to do to keep from falling into the trap of letting our actions dictate our beliefs? And that's what we would do. We'd, we would take the actions and say, it's okay, I can do this. And you put aside the beliefs, the cognitive dissonance. You say, I'm going to just go forward and do this. How do we prevent that? I gave you five points last week. Work on beliefs first. Be in fellowship. Repent of those practices and beliefs that are contrary to biblical orthodoxy. Be dogmatic on the essentials and flexible on the non-essentials and have an attitude of humility before Jesus. If you do those things, you're going to be all right. You're going to know what right and wrong is. The last part is, really, you just got to crucify the flesh. And we don't want to do that. We say no. And from the simplest things, 
Don't eat that. No, I'm going to eat that. Get up. No, I don't want to get up. Don't speed. No, I got to get there. We, we do that on a regular daily basis. But fortunately, we have been forgiven of those sins because Jesus is our Savior. Now, Paul's statements, giving his testimony, they continue in verse 15 of chapter 26 of the book of Acts. So if you're not there already, go ahead and take out a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 26 and verse 15. Now he is continuing to describe his conversion experience as we left off last week and continue this week. He says, then I asked, who are you, Lord? Remember the light shone around them, knocked everybody to the ground, but only Paul heard the voice of the Lord. And then Jesus responded and said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now, it's obvious Jesus wasn't there. Jesus was in heaven, but he was speaking to Paul through the light. And when Jesus says, you're persecuting me, he wasn't actually persecuting the physical body of Jesus. But anybody who belongs to Jesus that is in the family of Jesus is the equivalent to persecuting Jesus. You mess with my family, you mess with me. You know, that type of thing. And so he explained this to Paul. So Jesus considers himself one with those who have trusted him. Just like Jesus' prayer, his prayer was that we are one with Jesus or one with the Father, just as Jesus is one with the Father. And so being one means you have the same goals, the same intent intentions, the same likes, the same dislikes, the same discouragements. You are like each other, kind of like in a marriage. As you get older, you become just like the other one. Have you seen older couples? Sometimes they almost look like twins. They come out. Even this morning, you know, I I put on this gray sweater. Patty has on a gray sweater. You know what she said? You match me. Is what she said. <laughs> I do match you. That's right. And it's like we're be, we're still becoming one. You know. And I I laughed a little bit. And I, yeah, that's sweet. You know, that, that's nice. <clears throat> well, Paul continues his testimony, going on in verse sixteen. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. So he was chosen, he was appointed, and he was made a servant and a witness. We also are chosen. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole debate of Calvinism versus Arminianism and are you chose before the foundation of the world and it's a sovereignty of God and you have no choice in the matter, so to speak. I'm just going to reiterate Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. It says, in him... We were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be of the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of his glory. So it simply says, we are chosen, we are included before the foundations of the earth, but that doesn't take away the incumbent responsibility for us also to respond in belief. 
We must do that. We must apprehend the gift of God. We must take it to ourselves. And that is not a work, lest there be any type of discrepancy or confusion about that. Believing is not a work. The book of Romans goes through that in several different places. Faith is not a work. Otherwise, it's not a faith. Faith and works were distinguished, the two of them, in the book of Romans. So Paul was chosen. You are chosen as well. How do you feel about that? Before you were ever born, God said, Oh, I'm going to write down their name right here in the book of life. You you think, what? How is that possible? Well, God knows everything. He, he stretches time past to eternity future. Eternity past and eternity future. That's the nature of God. He knows everything. There isn't anything that he doesn't know. There isn't any place where he isn't. Uh, these last couple of weeks or so, I've been listening to Dr. James Tour. Now, if you don't know who he is, he is one of the 50 preeminent scientists in the world. And the things that he is involved in, uh, excuse me, I just lost my screen. The things that he is involved in are incredible. He made a car out of a molecule. It has four wheels. It has a motor. It has a chassis, and it's made of atoms which make up the molecule. He does that. He is responsible, at least had a part in, the design of what is known as graphene. Graphene is a single carbon atom layer, and it comes in sheets. Well, it also can be made into ribbons, and they have found out that in mice, they would go in the mice and they would cut the spinal cord And they'd put these ribbons in the gap. The ribbons provided a channel for the nerves. And within three weeks, the mouse was walking again. That's what this guy does. He is so smart. He is a molecular biologist, a chemist. He he knows all about this stuff. And it has been brewing since 2021 what he's doing. And he is hated by the scientific community. Because he deals with the origin of life on the molecular level. And he talks about how there are four chemicals that are necessary for life. And he goes through, and some of it is highly technical. You can go to DR Tour, I think it is, on YouTube. And you can listen to him and just have your mind expanded. And you won't understand half of it, but you get the gist. He knows that life cannot just spontaneously generate. And that's what we were taught. That's what's in the textbooks in high school. That's what's in the textbooks in college. That's what's at the PhD level. And he's blowing that up and people are mad. And he has his stuff peer-reviewed and they're all saying, yeah, the chemistry is right. The research is right. And you see stuff like that and, and you think to yourself, wow, God, you are at the molecular level. You know what's going on there. You could see the atoms. And that's not how they do chemistry. They don't look at it all the time under a microscope and put those little wheels in place and stick the motor in there. They don't do that. But God is there. He's at the smallest. And he's even at the smallest part of the atom. He's at the quarks and neutrinos and all that. And he's in the farthest reaches 
of the universe. And the universe is just huge. He is everywhere. We can't go where he isn't. And he knows everything. He's all-powerful. He, he is able to do anything that he wants within his character. And that's the God that we worship, and we're supposed to reflect on that, how great he is. Now, we want to reflect on this idea that we have been chosen And when you have been chosen, that means you have a responsibility. In marriage, if a man chooses a wife, and when he does that, he says, I'm taking on the responsibility of the wife. Now, I saw this interesting testimonial, and it was on a blog, uh, a web blog, and there's a movement out there for... Women coming forward, you've heard me talk about this before, trads women, they're traditional women. They want to be in the household, take care of the husband, take care of the house, take care of the family. And this one woman was on this uh, one particular website or this blog, and they had these other women who were modern feminists. And this woman starts talking about truth, what truth is being a traditional woman. This is what she said. She said... You know, I, I do the normal things like cook and clean and take care of the kids and make sure the house is all in order. She goes, but I go beyond that. I make sure that my husband has a place to come home, a house that is stable. It's a place where he can have respite or rest. And she goes, every night I massage him until he falls asleep. And I'm thinking, wow, that you know I'm, I'm just going away and she serves him religiously or faithfully and he's a happy man she would talk about him being a happy man and you should have seen the disdain on the other young women that were there like oh, oh, scoffing like oh I, I can't believe you would do something like that but the Lord also reacts to us like that now he doesn't give him and rub the shoulders oh thanks lord i appreciate it he doesn't do that but he takes care of us and he's preparing us for what lies ahead we're supposed to reflect on that so what responsibility do we have to him you know we there is a reciprocal responsibility he saved us and gave us gave us everything so what are we supposed to do for the lord well <clears throat> the bible talks about how much we are to love god In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, this is something that all good Hebrew children learned. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These are the commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your head and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. Jews do this today. Remember, they write them on your forehead and on your hands. That's where they have the phylactery boxes. That's what they're taking. They're saying, well, I'm so spiritual. I have the law of God right on my hand and right on my forehead. And also, if you go to a Jewish home, you have a mezuzah up there. And the mezuzah contains the law of the Lord. And as they walk in, they kiss it and they touch it and they walk in. And so you know a Jewish home. By the way, in Europe, they're asking them to take off the mezuzahs because of what's going on there with the... Uproar with the Palestinians. Now, this is repeated in the New Testament. Uh, 
In Mark chapter 12, verse 29, it says, The most important one answered Jesus is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Ask yourself the question, have you ever done anything like that? Where those four things are done. All your heart, it's your heart's desire. Your soul, it's part of your very being on the inside. What about your mind? Do you think about it? Do you you calculate what the truth is? Do you set it in columns and rows and be able to give a reason for the hope that lies within? And all your strength, you put all your effort into loving God. That's what the Jew is supposed to do, and that's what we're supposed to do, both Old Testament and New Testament. Now, Jesus... Oh, excuse me. Let me back up a little bit. Verse 17. Paul continues his testimony here before the court. He says, I will rescue you from your own people. This is Jesus talking to Paul. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open and pay attention here. There's five things, five things right here to open their eyes and turn them from the darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is like his mission statement that he has been given by God himself. And we're going to dissect this a little bit. Now, this is why he could speak so boldly. He knew in advance that he would survive the attempts on his life. Because God said he would protect him from both the Jews and the Gentiles. Now, ultimately, the state took his life. But the Jews and the Gentiles who were trying to kill him could not. So he was sent to the Jews and then to the Gentiles for five reasons. I'm going to reiterate these here. To open their eyes, number one. Turn them from darkness to light, number two. From the power of Satan to God, number three. Number four, so they may receive forgiveness of sins. And number five, a place in the kingdom by believing in Jesus. So how are these things accomplished? How did Paul accomplish these things? Now, we've already been over how he did this. Remember in Acts chapter 24, verse 25, as Paul discourse on righteousness, self-control, and judgment. We need to know what righteousness is. We need to know what self-control is. And we need to know about the judgments to come, whether it's the book of Revelation or whether it's Second Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter, two verses, no, chapter 5, verse 10. And it talks about the judgment, both a believer and unbeliever. And so I want to look at these. Number one, open their eyes. I want to ask you, was Paul told to go to blind people and heal them of their blindness? Or was he saying something different? He was saying something different. If he had the opportunity to open the eyes of the blind, do you think he should have taken it? Absolutely, if God gave him the ability to do that. But that's not what is really being taught here. Now, I want to illustrate this a little more. Turn over, if you have your Bibles, to Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. Now, the scriptures... Some people, to their own destruction, will take verses so literally they cannot see the nuance. Now, that's a fancy word. Nuance would be something like you go to Home Depot, you're going to paint your room. And how many colors of blue are there? (laughs) There's a blue and then there's all these nuances that are there. 
Or if you wanted gray, how many shades of gray are there? Or brown, how many shades of brown or green or red? They're nuanced. There's a little more. If I just said blue, paint the room blue. And you say, well, what color blue? It's more nuanced. So when somebody says, open the eyes of the blind, it's, it's not just find a blind person and heal them of their blindness. Give them sight. So in Luke chapter 18, now I want you to pay attention in yourselves. What is the Lord saying here? Is he saying to do something physical? Or is he saying there's a little bit more to it? The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Is it the physically, in the earth, in the world poor? Or is it something on the inside that they lack? A privation, so to speak. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners. Did Jesus have a ministry of going to prisons? And talking to the prisoners in prisons. And recovery of sight to the blind. Now definitely Jesus healed physically those who could not see. We have several examples of that in scripture. And I'm sure there are many more than what are listed. Or to release the oppressed. Oppressed by the Romans? Is that what's being talked about? Or oppressed by maybe Satan in the world? And so when you look at this, and he ends by saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's not just the physical aspects of what are listed there. The poor could be poor in wealth or poor in faith. The prisoners could be convicts, a prison ministry, or those who are bound by sin or sight to the blind, giving insight and understanding, not just healing the blind, and the oppressed, oppressed by Rome, certainly, but did he overthrow Rome? No, he didn't do that. And so there are other people who were oppressed. Now also, when Jesus was talking about adultery, the Jews thought it's the physical act. If you have the physical act, then that's adultery. But he says, if you've looked upon a woman in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27, if you looked upon a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery already. It's more nuanced. It's, it's bigger than just the physical words that are there. And most all of scripture is like that. There's deeper meaning. You can peel back the layers and say, what exactly does this mean and how deep does this go? Uh, to give you an example of this, in the youth group, We've been talking about uh, another tradition, a church of Christ, and the things that they believe. And we had a guest come from the church of Christ, and we're talking to him, and we were hoping to have him back. And I, I asked him, could you just explain the differences between the church of Christ and what we believe? And uh, before, he, he didn't make it back to do that. And I told some of the kids, I said, you know, bring a friend. You want to listen? Well, it was packed. This last, It was like, oh, no, they're going to just murder this guy if he tries to talk about the differences and they're going to take him to Scripture. And these kids, they, they know Scripture. They are able to defend the doctrines of the Christian faith. And so I'm thinking, oh, but he told me a couple of days before a meeting with the youth that he wasn't going to be there. And so he was, I just told him, he's not going to be here. But we had double or triple the amount of kids just because they wanted to engage, you know, so to speak. And, and I just kind of shook my head. But we, we talked about like baptism because the Church of Christ believes you must be baptized in their church according to their formula and then attend their church and no other church after that 
or your salvation is in jeopardy. And one of the verses, he did talk about uh, baptism. And remember, this guy's a wonderful guy. I have nothing bad to say about this guy. I, I can tell that he just loves the Lord and he wants to serve him. It's just we have different traditions. And he did bring up baptism, you know, in, in the book of Acts, repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. And it seems to say that baptism must take place as well as repentance. And he used another verse, Romans chapter 6, verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In this particular passage, he took it to mean water baptism. Now, when you look at the passage and you're trying to get information or understanding, you look for what's there and what's not there. For instance, in that particular passage, Romans 6, 3, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Is that referring to water baptism? Is the word water mentioned there at all? Is the act, the, the sacrament according to the Catholic Church of baptism, is it laid out like that? Let me ask you this. I'm going to read you a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud in the sea. So how did they get baptized into Moses? Did Moses open up his chest, they jumped in, and they got out and walked away? Did they go up to the cloud to be baptized in the cloud, referring to the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day? Were, were they baptized? Did, did they actually go into that? Is that what they did? Or the sea, the Red Sea, did they say, wait, we're going through the Red Sea, I need to jump in the water and be baptized in that water and then get back out? Was baptism by water ever practiced in the Old Testament? No, it wasn't. So if somebody says, Romans chapter 6, verse 3, or don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ, does that mean water baptism? Just like baptized into Moses, baptized into the cloud, baptized into the sea. You see how nuanced it is? The surface reading would say, well, obviously they're talking about water baptism. Well, I don't think that's really what it means. And so when we look at scripture, you have to peel it back to get the proper interpretation there. You can't just go by what's on the surface. Again, I said it was nuanced. There are subtle distinctions or variations to what is being taught there. So to open the eyes, and, and doesn't mean that restore sight to the blind. It could also mean to bring understanding. When somebody's eyes are open, they just go, oh, wow. By the way, those um, graphene... Uh, sheets, they hope to use it, and they're doing experiments on it right now, where they put those graphene ribbons between an ocular nerve and a new eye that's been donated. Because right now they won't grow together. The ocular nerve will not grow to an old nerve. They have to have like a ribbon in between to where it can grow on that path. And they hope to restore sight to blind people. This is in the future. You know, not all the news in the world is bad. And some of that stuff, like you can make people walk and you give them eyesight. This is going to be incredibly uh, interesting what's going to take place in the future. Well, <clears throat> there is someone who came along and explained God to you. Now think of who that was. There was somebody who either called you up, was a friend to you, you heard them on the radio, you saw them on television, and they opened your eyes. Now, just as a personal testimony, I remember exactly when this happened. 
I, I sought after God when my grandmother died. I've told you that story before. But I used to uh, wrestle. I was a wrestler. And I wrestled in high school, and they recruited me to a junior college, and I went to the junior college, and at the end of the season, we would have this get-together a banquet, so to speak, and it was held in the coach's house. And the counselor there, who was a counselor for the team, he was there as well. And the coach gave the counselor a Bible at the banquet. And I saw that, and all of a sudden, inside of me, I go, wait, what? What is this about? You're giving them a Bible. And I remember going, I want to know about that. I want to know what that is. I, I felt this desire on the inside. That was the beginning of it. And then I started searching. What, where can I go to get this information? And started listening to the radio, to Bible programs and stuff. Oh, I was never in a church. Got saved by a guy on a radio down in Palm Desert. Now, you've heard the testimony before. And, and it's like, God put the desire in my heart. I followed through with it. And I accepted him in my room in Palm Desert that's what happened and then I I gotta go somewhere I gotta find a church somewhere and so the Lord you know he set me on a a trek to find a church so God will place a hunger in you like he placed in me God will provide someone to show you the bread of life you responded if you were saved by eating the bread of life and drinking the water of life and drinking the blood any Uh, Another way of saying your eyes were opened, you turned from darkness to light, you received forgiveness of your sin. That's how it happened with you. I don't even need to know your testimony. But that's how somebody came to you, gave you the insight, and you said, I will, from this day forward, follow Christ. I wish to be his disciple. Now, in Jesus' own words, in case you were offended, like some word in the time of Jesus about eating the body of Christ and drinking his blood, John six fifty four. whoever eats my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Now again, right on the surface, what does this mean? Cannibalism. I get, but that, that, no way is he actually saying that. So it's more nuanced. And remember, almost all the scriptures like that. There's this underlying meaning that you have to mine. You, you have to get to the core of the message there. And remember the people that Jesus was speaking to. Mostly uneducated. And the ones that were educated were blinded. And they didn't want to see the truth. But Jesus comes along for those who would receive him. And he opens their eyes. Now, how old were you? When you really became aware as an adult, think about it for a second. You're a child, you're putting dirt on ant mounds, you're going into closets and making it dark, you're taking a magnifying glass and doing destruction, and you put away the childish things, and all of a sudden, you started to realize you're an adult. You're a thinking, sentient being. I am me. You know, is what you would say to yourself. Maybe not in words, but you started to become independent. There was a time that that happened to you. You may be able to recall it or it just happened slowly. Now, opening the eyes can take time. It happens differently for different people. And two reasons that somebody can't have their eyes open is, number one, they're blinded by the enemy. 
We know that 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ who is in the image of God. So the enemy comes along and puts blinders on the person maybe wanting to seek after God. Same thing with the uh, parable of the sower of the seed. Seed is dropped on the path and the enemy comes and he takes the seed. The word of God does not plant, does not germinate, does not bear fruit. So he is blinded by the world. The second one, for reasons that people refuse to come into the light or see, they just refuse. No, I don't want it. Uh, John 5.40, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And the Jews were refusing on an epic scale. So to open the eyes of someone, it takes place when the Holy Spirit grants them the ability to perceive. Because after all, no one seeks after God at any time. No one. None of us did unless God came to us and he prompted us. And that's what we have to get in touch with that. That's the Holy Spirit. Like the Holy Spirit led us to be saved. He was speaking to you. And you're what? Huh? And the Lord will still speak. He speaks through his word. He may speak to you in some other fashion, just like an intuition. But it will never violate scripture. It will always be in line with what the word has to say. So it is often triggered by our interacting with unbelievers. This is how God puts the desire in our heart and it fans into flame when somebody else who is a believer comes along and you start talking to them. You've been a witness to somebody. They know you're a Christian. They know you've gone to church. They know how devout you are or how devout you are not. They know that stuff. But they know you. You're the Christian. You're the one, and you'll have interactions with them, and you can fan that flame, so to speak. Now, there is a point where they say, or they think to themselves or others, I want to know more, tell me more. This is what you did at some point. You listened, you received it, and you say, I want to know more. And then when the word was taught to you, I I can remember... um, going and being discipled by a guy named Jeff Lee, his wife Tess. And they were a wonderful couple. They came into my life. God put them in my life so I could be discipled. And I can remember not knowing one of the stories of pericopes in the New Testament. And that's the one where the Syrophoenician woman comes and asks Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus says, I've only gone to the house of Israel I'm only coming to the house of Israel and she says yes Lord but even dogs wait at the table to get the crumbs and I didn't know what that meant and I asked him and Tess was sitting there she goes oh goody he's asking questions and then he just slowly explained to me what that meant and I needed that I, I needed that instruction I needed to be taught and he was willing to teach me and he discipled me uh, first couple years as a believer now you could be that person with somebody else where you're discipling them. So that's the open their eyes. Then turn them from darkness to light. The second thing, when eyes are closed, there's darkness. Have you ever closed your eyes so tight that you try not to see any light at all? And then you see the redness that's there from your eyelids and you go, oh, it's not really dark enough. And and you played that as a kid, that type of thing. When eyes are wide open, the person perceives light and gets information. Once the eyes are open, they detect distinctions. For instance, the uh, man that Jesus healed that was blind rubbed his eyes and he says, can you see anything? He says, men look like trees. And then he washed again and what did he see? 
he saw clearly what was there. And so this idea of opening up the eyes, you get light illuminating everything around you and you get understanding. Could you imagine being a blind person and then all of a sudden seeing? You would have problems discerning what you're seeing. They've made movies about this. One guy in particular, he he had a massage business and he was blind and he ended up seeing and he had problems processing, seeing what was out there. Now, for instance, can you see facial expressions if you're blind? You can't. Now, I want you to do this exercise with me. I want you to take your eyebrows and I want you to push them all the way to your nose. Like that. Now, I want you to take your mouth and I want you to curve it down. Do that. I, I want to see you do that. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. You're reluctant. Some of you are like, this is silly. I'm not going to do that. No, I'm trying to make a point. Or what if you take your eyebrows and you raise them up to your hairline? Just, what, what is that? It's like, I'm surprised, right? Like, whoa. And if you take your mouth and go, but you don't say anything. You see how much information is being transferred just by the face and you cannot see. Oh, what about this one? Take an eyebrow, raise it as high as you can and the other one, push it as low as you can. Right? You're doing that. What is, and, and you take your mouth and you move it to the side. When you're doing that, each one of those looks has a meaning but there is no communication verbally. And so a person who is blind sees those, like, what does that mean? What, how is that being communicated? And it must have been a wonderful thing for those people. They probably started weeping. And I've, I've explained this one before. Have you ever seen the uh, uh, videos? And if you haven't, you need to see them. Of the people who have been completely deaf, cannot hear, and they get that implant behind the ear and they turn it on and when they hear it for the first time they're like surprised and then they just start weeping because of what they hear because it's so difficult in trying to explain what it is that they're hearing and it just moves your heart to see that if you haven't seen those you got to look them up somebody who hears for the first time getting the implant on there it's just a wonderful sight to behold or when a little child starts hearing for the first time and the parents start weeping because the child can hear it's just a wonderful thing that is there and so that's that brings understanding when you turn them from darkness to light the light brings the understanding you have to open your eyes first you have to have the desire then thirdly, from the power of Satan to the power of God. Now, Satan is the God of this age. We are told this in Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. If you do some theological research on this, it appears that he was given the title deed to the earth when Adam and Eve fell. Uh, that's what some theologians say. And so it was in his power to give all the kingdoms of this earth to Jesus if he would just bow down and worship him. So he's the one in control. And he has everyone in this world bound in chains. And Jesus is the one that takes those chains and throws them away. He unlocks this. Now, 
It's almost like, um, remember oxen? If you had two oxen, you, you would put something on their neck in order to get the ability to plow a field. That's called a yoke. This is similar in Isaiah 58, verse 6. Is not the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of a yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke? This is our job, just like it was Paul's job, not only to open the eyes, but we also were to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, where we pray for them. That, that Satan would have no power over the individuals we are witnessing to, or family or children that are around us, that Satan would not be able to influence them. And I've seen that so many times, like with the kids and the youth, that they are on fire for the Lord in the youth group, and then when they leave, you, you go, what in the world happened to these kids? They completely dive into the world. There are some that remain solid, and stable, and others that just go off the deep end. So just like Paul, you are an instrument to break the chains that hold the people of the world, and just like an angel who loosed the chains from Peter in his prison cell. Remember that? Acts chapter uh, 12, beginning in verse 7. Peter was in a cell, and an angel came in, the chains fell off, the doors opened, and, and the angel, it says, he smacked him on the side, like, get up! You know, that type of thing. And the chains fell off. He put the clothes on and he went through all the gates and went by the guards and he went out, went to the house and they didn't believe he was at the house and they were inside praying for him to be released. And there he is on the outside. Open up, it's me, Peter. And the girl was so excited she walked inside, but she didn't open up the door for him. Remember that whole story there? Peter was released by an angel. You can be somebody's angel where you help get them released from the power of Satan. Now, number four here is so that they might receive forgiveness of sins. When we disclose or discourse about righteousness, self-control, and judgment, people either receive it or they reject what you have to say. Festus is going to do that. Paul, you are mad. We will get to that. He rejected what Paul had to say. But Paul turned to King Agrippa, as we will see in the future, and he goes, I know you know these things, King Agrippa. And Agrippa says, do you think I'm going to become a Christian so quickly after listening to you? And Paul says, wow, I wish you were exactly as I am, except for these chains. So Paul was in chains. And, and there is going to be somebody that you can pray for, that they will follow your prayer. You can recite a prayer, and they'll follow you and they can be saved. Now, the ones who receive your words obtain forgiveness. The ones who reject your words reject salvation. Bear in mind that we, not ourselves, are the ones that are doing the work. It's the Holy Spirit who's doing the work. He's just using us as a vessel. When there is a realization that we are the sinners and are condemned to an eternity separated from God, we will respond one way or the other. I don't know how many of you go out witnessing. Like I said, I, I, I try to take every opportunity that I can to witness. It's seldom that somebody right there prays to accept the Lord. I have had it happen, but it's rare. You're the seed planter. You're the one that's giving information. You're telling people that they are sinners just like you are a sinner, but you've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And they can be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. And there's something in their future that is glorious if they just accept it. Now, the fifth one here, they get a place in the kingdom by believing in Jesus. So the five again, open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins, and then you get the reward 
the payoff for doing all that. And it's fellowship with God simply by believing and not doing. Now, I want to give you an illustration. There, <clears throat> Have you seen these um, little vignettes, these little videos of when a animal is rescued, namely a dog? There will be a dog. It's maybe out somewhere in the wilderness. I saw a little bitty dog. It was in a flood channel. It was missing part of its leg and the bone was exposed and it was out there shivering and some people rescued that. There was one recently that I saw, this little dog, maybe about this big, and he was covered with sores. His back right leg couldn't use it for some reason. The eyes were encrusted over. There was mange going on. I mean, and the dog was shaking. It was cold. They gave it some food, and the little dog received the food while it was still shaking, and it looked like it was right on death's door. And they reached in, and they took this dog, and they, they wrapped it in a warm cloth, and they took it back. This is in a foreign country, too, but they took it back to their house, and then they, they fed the dog more, then they washed the dog, then they gave the dog a haircut to really see the sores and things that were on its body, and they started treating it. They put this uh, pulp-type thing all over the body, and it healed the sores that were there. The eyes cleared up, and then it showed the dog after it had gone through the process. Everything was restored on the dog. The dog's fleece was white as snow and there were no ailments on the dog's body it was happy jumping around ears were up the tail was wagging eyes were wide open you just go wow you have a friend that is like that little dog that is on the verge of death and they don't even know it I'm sure this dog realized it was in trouble but maybe not on the verge of death and I'm talking about death spiritually. Could be physically, but spiritually. And you can come in, open its eyes. You can bring in the light. You can release them from the power of Satan and the power of hell. You can help them to accept Jesus Christ and tell them about the reward that lies ahead. <clears throat> I have a question, especially for you men. Do you hold your breath when you tie your shoes in the morning? Do you bend over and reach down there and tie it? Or when you put on your shoes, do you reach down and get those things on? Do your legs cross as easy as they used to? That type of thing. You see how we're, we're slowly going towards decay? All of us are doing that? Well, the world is slowly going to decay. So Paul was given a commission directly by Jesus Christ, those five things that he was responsible to do. And in verse 19 of that chapter says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the Gentiles. Also, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. Now, we'll pick it up there next time, but the application of this... We want to be respectful, but open a door to a room that is enveloped in darkness. If you were a child and somebody opened that door and maybe you got upset because they opened the door because you wanted to stay in the darkness, be respectful, but open some doors. And if you talk to somebody, they may say, oh, I was waiting for that light, figuratively speaking, 
Or they say, leave me alone. I don't want to hear about your Christ, your Jesus, and heaven and hell and all of that and judgment, which is to come, righteousness and self-control. I don't want to hear about any of that. But when you open the doors, see who's inside. See who needs that help. I know you know somebody who is not saved. I'll bet you know several people who are not saved. You can start praying for them. You can invite them to Christmas Eve. Again, I, I told you, I invited somebody to Christmas Eve who is unchurched. Do that. And if you get a little nervous, just say, my pastor told me to do this. I need to ask you at a Christmas Eve service. Would you like to come? And then be willing to pick them up and bring them. And I'm talking about the unsaved. Now, you can bring people who are saved too. That's wonderful. That's good. They can be encouraged. Maybe they're a CEO Christian, Christmas and Easter only. Or... or They just need to hear a word of encouragement to have their eyes open. And you can assist them in that. Be able to explain righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come. Rescue those from this present evil age who are being led to destruction. And what a privilege that is. You know, when we get to heaven, God looks at us and says, he won't even have to say, so what did you do? You'll be able to answer. Well, this is what I did. All for you, Lord. With all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, we all recognize when you sent your son here that he was born, that he might die purposefully so that we might live. We would ask, Lord, that you would use us, maybe not to the same extent as Paul, but that you would use us that you would give us boldness. We know that the time is short. We exist here only for a little while and then like a flower we fade. May some come to faith this Christmas, Lord, that we know. May you give us opportunities and may you help us prepare for them. In Jesus' name, and the church said, please stand.